Good morning. It's good to see you. I'm excited to jump into our passage. We're going to be in Acts 18 today, if you have a Bible or a device you use. My name is Luke. I'm excited to teach this passage today. I think it's going to be helpful for all of us. Acts 18, as we move through our work in the book of Acts. One of the things we talk about a lot here is how we are on mission. We use that phrase a lot, on mission, or I might refer to you as a missionary or the life we live is a missional life. And what, what I'm really referring to when I use those phrases is that we live on God's mission, right? The, the, the church is on God's mission. It's God's mission that we carry forth. And we do it for the redemption of all of God's creation. God has always had a mission, by the way, even in the Old Testament. Uh, God's mission didn't start in the New Testament. It started all the way from the very beginning. And when we are joined into the Lord's family, we become missionaries. That's the equation. That's how it works out. And we kind of see in the New Testament, the Lord lift up certain phrases like in Acts 1-8 when we started this whole series talking about how we will be empowered to be witnesses in different people groups and in different places. And then we hear in Matthew 28, what we call the Great Commission being this emphatic declaration that we are to go and make disciples who will make disciples in all areas of life. Right? So, if you are in Christ, you are on mission. That's, that's how it works. If you are in Christ, you are on mission. Now, we might be distracted while on mission. We might be disobedient while on mission. But we cannot decouple the Christian identity with being a missionary. You can't pull those apart from each other. Now, missionaries today, they don't necessarily cross oceans and go into the jungle or anything like that. We do cross ideologies, though, and the church is full of missionaries. God's missionary church is a big one, full of stay-at-home moms and entrepreneurs and cage fighters and students and anything you can think of. It is a big church full of missionaries. And this is one thing I know about being a missionary. It's exhausting, it is fatiguing, and it is very discouraging. In fact, it's terrifying, straight up terrifying sometimes. One of the things I love, probably one of my favorite quotes from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was this elite preacher a long time ago. He's a Baptist preacher in London. He has this quote that we read over our pastors when we set them in here a few weeks ago. And he says, the ministry is a matter which wears the brain and strains the heart. And it drains out the life of a man if he attends to it as he should. Now, he's speaking to pastors here. He had a small school where he built and trained pastors. But this is true of all ministry. And I think if you find yourself as a missionary today, but you're kind of tired, maybe grumpy, fatigued, this is going to be a helpful passage for you today. I mean, if you're leading a missional community, maybe you're co-leading, hosting, maybe you're just a high contributor in your missional community. Maybe if you're, you catch yourself explaining the gospel to friends, to peers, to co-workers, you pray for them, you hope for them, it can be draining. It can strain the life right out of you if you do it long enough. And this weariness... It actually finds us when we're already fatigued just for being a human, just for being alive. That's tiring alone. I mean, life is kind of this pendulum. It's this exercise and being charged and being depleted pretty much every day. Your bed is like a wireless charger that you lay on every night, 
and it charges you and gets you ready for the next day. You start the next day with a full charge, and then what happens all day? Same thing that happens to your phone. It starts to deplete and starts to drain, which is why despondency finds us in its most acute form in the evening hours. Batteries are empty. And some seasons deplete us more than other seasons, right? November's not April. The winter is not the summer. In fact, the summer months seem to remind us that even though bits and pieces of our life slow down and we might be able to squeeze out a vacation here or there, at least a long weekend, we still seem to be weary, don't we? And the reason is because the fatigue and the weariness we're really talking about right now is not something that a vacation can solve. We're faced with the fact that we have lots of limitations. In fact, they're front and center. It's all we can see. It's our limitations. We feel like we should be rested, but we're not. And that can be scary. And that's where some of us are today, right? Even the, even the idea of being on mission is fatiguing. I mean, even as I started the sermon with, hey, this is what it means to be on mission and a missionary, there might have been some of you inside that were like, Oh, man, I'm already tired. Luke's about to talk for the next 32 minutes on something that I should be doing that I'm not doing. He's going to talk a little bit about how I ought to be doing something in my workplace or my home or my neighborhood that I'm not doing because I'm so tired. Just talking about it is fatiguing, right? And listen, let me just tell you, as a guy who's not a young pup anymore, the fatigue, it amplifies as you age, as you get older, right? Paul says it well to the Corinthian church. He says, although that we are renewed inwardly every day, guess what happens outwardly? This earth suit we wear. (laughs) It wastes away every day. And what that means is my charge doesn't hold like it used to. I have to charge myself a little bit more often, and my battery wears down quite a bit faster. I know I'm not bulletproof anymore. That's where a lot of us are. And we realize that all of our dreams that we had when we were young just did not come true. And that awareness of where we're at in life as we age, it brings even more weariness, even more fatigue, even more discouragement. All of this to say, I know many of us are tired. And not just tired, we're tired of being tired. Maybe a bit of shame that we feel that, that tired. And ultimately what it is is we hate capital H, hate, coming face-to-face with our limitations. I do anyway. I hate it. With all my best attempts and all the best technology I can find to master my universe, I still have limits. I bump into them all the time. We all do. We all want to be unlimited, though, boundless. We want our data unlimited. want never-ending breadsticks. We want our coffee refills to be unlimited, our streaming to be unlimited unlimited, unlimited energy, unlimited everything. And where we do bump into borders and boundaries and limitations, we will invent technology to take them away. The light bulb comes around and it removes the limitation of night so we could keep producing things, right? Planes and cars and trains, they remove distance as a limitation. See how good we are at this as mankind? Robots are now replacing human beings in warehouses and in restaurants so that people are not limited in their overnight deliveries and then their cheaper food. We don't even want to be limited by our our planet, so we talk about colonizing Mars. Cryogenics says that if we free certain parts of our body or all of our body, we might be able to maybe get past this limitation called death. We hate being hemmed in. 
Technology will promise in some ways that it can remove all of our borders and limitations, and we're addicted to it. And here's why. We got it honestly. We got it from the garden, where our parents themselves wanted to be autonomous and unlimited. They also did not want to be hemmed in. They refused their borders, and in doing so, they brought creation itself crashing down around them. And now, even today, in 2022, with the best of strategies and the best of technologies, we still get weary and tired and tired of being tired. But what if that's good? What if it's healthy? What if it's good and healthy for us to be limited, to be finite? to bump into our hard edges, to be tired, to be fatigued. and to, What if that's a good place for us not to be boundless? And what if it actually leads us to worship? And that's the big idea I'm going to want you to carry out with you today is that when we are at our most, that is when we are at our least. But when we are at our least, that is literally where we are at our most. In fact, I'm going to say it's our limitations that will even prepare the human heart for the gospel. Some of you, you've not been changed by the gospel. The gospel's not something that has maybe penetrated the heart. And maybe even today, if you're watching or you're here, you might feel a little bit like you're trespassing, like you don't belong here, right? And if that's you, listen, the limitations you feel, that's like fertile soil for what the gospel grows in us because without a firm understanding that we are finite, the gospel just doesn't make any sense. It's got, there's nothing to be rescued from because we're boundless and we're without limitations. I remember the night I got saved. I remember it because I was in my 20s. And I remember sitting in that room thinking to myself, feeling when I walked in that I kind of had everything that I had ever wanted, but being miserable, absolutely miserable. And even saying to myself, I can't do this anymore. I'm undone. I need to be rescued. I honestly need a solution for my soul's weariness. Enter Jesus, who's the hero of our gospel story, right? He is the centerpiece and the crown jewel of the story of God for mankind, how he brings his favor and his grace and his mercy to us, totally despite us. It's Jesus that holds it together. And what we have to understand about the gospel story is he left a limitless environment to enter into our limitations. Consider that. When you think about the incarnation and him coming through a manger, and when you think about Christmas time, that's literally what we're seeing. He enters a place of restrictions full of circadian rhythms and hunger and sickness and in pain. He actually took our limitations and wore them. He put them on. He felt our weariness, and he did this to carry us to a place with no weariness, to carry us to a place where we are boundless, unlimited, and satisfied, finally satisfied. You see, all of humanity is encoded with this craving for God. Just as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 3, and we really double-clicked on this quite a bit when we went through the book of Ecclesiastes, God has stamped eternity into the heart of man. I mean, when man enters creation, we enter a place of time, but we crave timelessness. We enter a place full of weariness and full of limitations, but we crave something much more enduring and much more eternal. This is why weariness and discouragement can feel so hellish. So we just crave something different. It's the way you were made. This is why I love Matthew 11 so much. Matthew 11, stay where you're at in Acts. But all passages are inspired. This one is very inspiring to me. In fact, there's one of the few passages that every time I read it, it calls to me. And it's Jesus saying, come to me, 
all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Man, I can't hear that enough. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here's the big challenge for us today. My big challenge, anyway. If I'm not careful, we can actually turn this moment into one where I instruct you on how to exceed your limits, break through your limitations and your boundaries. That would just be teaching you how to be a better Adam, though, wouldn't it? We're not interested in growing in an achievement culture full of self-reliant people. Not really interested in you walking out being a bigger, better, faster version of yourself, which is just a better Adam. But maybe to abide and hide inside of the second Adam, who is Jesus Christ, who came to undo the works of the first Adam, who did come into our boundaries and remove our weary fatigue. My goal is not for you to walk out self-reliant with a list of things that you need to do to be more impressive to God, but to walk out thinking, look what God has done. Look what God has done. That's the goal. So what do we do with our tired selves when we are also called into mission? We're also called into mission, which to be honest, as we've already seen, is expensive and draining if we attend to it as we should, according to Spurgeon. When already exhausted, how do weak and wounded missionaries walk forward? I think the best way to get that answered is just to ask one. And this is where we're going to find Paul. So look at Acts 18, verse 1. We're just going to walk through a little bit of this passage. And this is Paul after he leaves Athens. We talked about that last week as Randy was up here. That was a heavyweight moment for them. That was a heavyweight moment for him. He was alone too, okay? Just to remind you of that. Verse 1 of Acts 18, it says this. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade and stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Okay, let's pause for a moment because there's a lot there. Paul is alone and he drags himself to Corinth. Drags himself because he was tired. He was wiped out. And he's entering this overwhelming city. And it might sound like I'm speculating right now. Luke, how do you know that he was tired? How do you know that he was wore out? He actually says so. If we go to the, the book of 1 Corinthians, which is a letter to this very city that he just waltzed into, this is how he almost starts the whole letter off in 1 Corinthians 2. Stay where you're at. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Not trembling, much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Weakness, fear, and a whole lot of trembling. Not, not, not really the Paul that we've all come to grow in love, right? Doesn't even sound like Paul. But I want you to consider the beatings he's had, the nights in jail, the pain he has suffered. The loss of friends, the loss of reputation, his health, his money. Listen, he doesn't even have control over his surroundings. He doesn't get to really decide when he's leaving these cities. Have you caught that? He's kind of pushed out of them, chased out of them. And he enters Corinth, weak, full of fear, with a lot of trembling. Corinth isn't like all the other cities, too. 
It's not like Athens or Ephesus or Jerusalem. Corinth, first of all, is much larger. It's one of the largest people centers of the ancient world, and it's morally bankrupt. Not thousands, dozens of thousands, many, many thousands of prostitutes would roam the streets. It was a sailor's town. It was a marketplace town. It's, it's touching two different seas. Tim Keller, when he was asked about this, he says if Athens is like Boston today, where Boston is kind of a seat of academia, he said Corinth is more like Manhattan with a whole lot of Las Vegas sprinkled on top. It's one of the most depraved places Paul had stepped foot on to this point. And he was tired when he got there. He was already weary from being on mission, for being a human. So how does God minister to him? First thing he does is he brings him some new friends. Aquila and Priscilla, very cool couple, always named together, very helpful. In fact, at one point, Paul says that they even saved his life. Here's what's interesting. When I read this, this is when, when I'm discouraged and I'm tired, I don't want new friends. I don't want any new friends. I want isolation. Because this is what a new friend tells me in my mind. That's going to demand more energy. I don't have any more energy to give. That's an introvert's dilemma, by the way, right? But every single introvert in here is like, yep, I'm there. I didn't even have to finish the statement. And all of us kind of grow more introverted as we age anyway, so most of you understand what I'm saying to begin with. But so much of God's ministry is through his people, right? New friends. Being alone, it actually promises a form of rest, but living alone pervasively will drain your soul dry. It promises paradise, but it doesn't bring paradise at all, even if you're an introvert. You see, solitude is different from isolation. Solitude is where you retreat away from people to be with just God. Isolation is you just retreat from everybody, God and man. You're just alone for the sake of being alone. Listen, there is a place for solitude in the growth of a disciple. If you want to grow as a disciple, you can't really grow too far unless you employ a good sense of solitude. Isolation, however, there's no place for it. There's no place for it. This is one reason that summer months can be difficult for the life of the church because we are all disjointed from our communal rhythms. That which was pretty entrenched in the spring and the fall, we kind of let go of a little bit, right? And by May, we're kind of ready for it, aren't we? A little bit more margin in the schedule, a change of pace, just the, the, the doing things a little bit differently. If you are not careful, that extra margin that was solitude turns into isolation really fast, really fast. That's what pastors know. Just behind the curtain, what pastors talk about sometimes when pastors get together and talk about pastor stuff, the summers are a great time for people looking for community. It's also a time where we see a lot of families disappear. They just disappear because they found isolation and they just employed that in their life. We've got to move back on to this passage. He goes into business with these guys, his new friends working with his hands. And if Paul's anything like me, he's probably reflecting in that time, working with his hands, working with leather, making tents, defragging the old mental hard drive, kind of working through what God has done in this second missionary trip, what he's doing with his heart. I think this is a healthy time. I think I grew up reading this passage that my gosh, he's having to make tents? What a horrible season for him. Like it's something bad thing. I think he's probably excited about it, probably looking forward to doing something like this, even for a small moment. And he's also making money. He's also making money. 
right? See, he doesn't want to be a burden to this young church, which is barely even a church plant at this point. Probably not even what he, I don't even think he has a launch team at this point. Now, later on, even to this very same people, Paul will make an uber strong case on pay your ministers, pay them well. We don't have a lot of passages in the Bible about how to pay a minister. The ones we do says pay them well, right? But in this specific case, he wanted to remove the burdens from that young church plant. That's, believe it or not, that's how churches are still planted today too, by the way. I mean, me and my bride, we literally, we raised our own salary. We didn't even start taking a salary from Legacy until a few years ago, right? To take the burden off of the church. Bivocational church planting is another effective strategy. Barista by day, pastor by night, right? That one's a little harder. Shot clock is a little faster, obviously, because they're working so many hours. But this is basically what Paul's doing, right? It's what he's doing. But just for a little while, just for a little while, we're about to find out why. Acts 15, verse 5. Let's get back into the passage. It says, when Silas and Timothy, not new friends, those were old friends. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your heads, I am innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. All right, now he's building a launch team. But old friends show up. They bring encouragement and they bring money, right? They bring money so that he could occupy himself fully with the ministry full time. Again, we're not speculating on that. He writes to the same exact people, 2 Corinthians 11, and he says this, and when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. Why? Because he's making tents. And then, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. That's Timothy and Silas. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. Because he's a good church planner. But he immediately finds the same brick walls he finds in every other city. So he lets everybody know when they were rejecting him that if you refuse Jesus, you are self-destructing, and that's on you. So he shakes his garment out, which is this ancient, dramatic way of basically saying, you're on your own. My part here is finished, and, and your results, they don't stick to me. I'm not responsible for the decision you make. I'm responsible for you hearing it clearly. That's all that's going on right now. And then probably the biggest flex in the entire passage is he takes his efforts next door. <laughs> he's rejected from the synagogue, and he's like, all right, party next door. And they all move next door. And not only that, who does he take with him as part of his launch team? The guy that was leading the synagogue. That's who he starts with. I love this part of the passage. And the church grows. And at this point in the passage, you'd have to think to yourself, he's back. Paul's back doing Paul's stuff. He's got, he's got to be more confident now. This had to have given him this giant jolt of energy because, man, he's crushing it in Corinth. But he's still in a discouraged and weary place. He's still fearful. How do we know this? Again, I'm not speculating. Look at the next verse in verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. Listen, we don't say that to people that aren't afraid. He's telling him that because he's afraid, right? Do not be afraid. 
But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, which that's a long time for Paul, teaching the word of God among them. So God apparently does not just bring friends to weary missionaries, but he brings supernatural encouragement. That's the second big thing that we take away. He says, do not be afraid. Why would he say that? Because Paul knows what's next. Come on. He, he's seen this episode before. Start a church, see some fruit, take a whooping, leave town. Rinse, repeat. He's doing the same thing. God shows up, and he's not teaching Paul. He's reminding Paul. He's reminding Paul. Paul needed to be reminded that God is God, just like you, just like me. You know, just that phrase. Sometimes when I catch myself on my heels spiritually, freaking out about something, panicked, fearful, much trembling, the, 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 the smelling salt that kind of pulls me back into consciousness, it sounds a lot like, hey, Luke, God is God or he's not. God is God or he's not. Get it together. He's either a liar or he's in control. He's either sovereign or he's a liar. God is God or he's not. And then after just a second or two, I'm like, yeah, that's right. I just needed to be reminded. Just needed to be reminded. I'm good. I'm good. Everything's good, right? Do not be afraid is the most ancient thing that God says, and it's the most cutting-edge thing that he says. We are all afraid of what God calls us into. All of us are. Why? Because we are so aware of our limitations apart from God. So aware. I mean, you're so aware of it that whenever you do think about declaring or demonstrating the gospel in some tangible way to your kids, your neighbors, your peers, to anybody, you start immediately thinking about what you lack. I'm not smart enough. I'm not winsome enough. I don't have enough time. I don't have the opportunity. I don't. I don't. I can't. I ought to be better. I should be better. I don't have what I need. We're so very aware. This is what happens. Verse 12, just like Paul would have predicted. Verse 12, but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be the judge of these things. And he drove them out of the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. This is such, a, such an odd part of the passage. Gallio saying, that's not a me problem, that's a y'all problem. I've got things to do, I'm going somewhere else. So their response to that is they get this guy that succeeded Crispus. Crispus was already, he's a Christian now. He's not, he's not the ruler of the synagogue. This new guy is. New for all of like 12 minutes. And they drag him into the center of activity and they beat him. Why? Why are they doing that? That is where there is a lot of speculation, just depending on who you read. Some say he was starting to become a Christian himself. Some say they were just angry and they just wanted to beat something, which is very toddler, right? We don't get what we want. We start flipping things over and start punching things. I think that's probably what was happening here. That's my opinion. I think that's just where they're at. Verse 18, 
After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him Priscilla and Aquila. And at Centria he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there, leaving the couple there. It's a strong move, good move. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. And there he is, back where he started, end of the second missionary trip, right? Made a full circle. Now, what resonates most with me when I read this passage is Paul's weariness and his fear. He's firmly acquainted with his boundaries. God brought him some friends and God brought him some encouragement. But what do you think his temptations were? What do you, I would imagine they're the same as ours, right? When I'm reminded of my limitations, my temptations are, or my limitations, my temptation is to retreat by myself. We just talked about that, isolation. I'm so tempted to isolate. To distract myself, that's another thing. And then just to double down and try harder. That's a sneaky one, right? Distraction is easy. We have a million and one ways to distract ourselves. If there was an Olympic sport on scrolling, teenagers in America would dominate. We would have a gold medal every year because we have all gotten very, listen, you could do this for hours. Don't believe me? There's some apps. Just get on there, six seconds, not good enough, four seconds, maybe another second. You just keep doing this. You could do this for hours, friends. And whenever you're doing this for hours and you're scrolling on your phone, you never have to come face to face with your limitations. You never have to come face to face with your discouragement or your weariness because you're escaping. You're distracting yourself. And it's easy to do. The sneakier one is shame-based work, rededication, where we just try harder to be better, but we don't do it from a gospel center. We don't do it from the right foundations. We just do it to be more impressive. I ought to be better than this. I should be. Anytime you hear those words, ought and should, that's just the voice of shame echoing around in you. You ought to be better than you are. You should be different than you are. And there's something in that that we hear, we think, yeah, if I'm going to be clean, if I'm going to be beautiful to God, if I'm going to be impressive, I'm going to have to perform better. But friend, let me just tell you, that brings on a very wicked kind of anxiety. An anxiety that you should be something, but yet you cannot be that something. Growth is only good when it comes from gospel motivations. If you're growing and it's not from a gospel motivation, that's not good. That's not good. It's not the kind of growth you really are looking for. You are free to grow. You are free to put some sins down. You're free to be different tomorrow than you are today. You're free to do that. But your growth doesn't extract more favor from God. Your failure to grow does not forfeit any of God's favor if you are in Christ. Thinking that that's the case breeds this anxious toiling. I love Psalm 127. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. That doesn't mean don't build. It just means that as you build, understand God is the one that is working. He is the one that is really using strength and might. If you forget that, then you're wasting your time. It goes on, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It doesn't tell us not to watch. 
It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives sleep to his beloved sleep, or he gives to his beloved sleep. Listen, here's the gospel for us in a passage like this. We are free to celebrate our limits because we are finite. We're finite. And it is our weakness that we actually find that we're quite full. And when we find that we are at our least, that's actually when we are at our most. Paul talks to this people much longer down. He's planted the church. He's written a couple letters, and he says this to them. After God has given him a thorn that he did not ask for. Didn't ask for this thorn. You want to know why? It's another limitation. He's wanting to get beyond it. He's like, hey, let me loose. Take the thorn away. I could be much more effective. And then God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast, Paul says, all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul was held down by this thorn. He wanted to be limitless. But what he finds is that joy is going to be right where his limits and God's power touch. Right where they collide. In his weakest, he found a fullness. He celebrates it. He worships in it. He finds deep contentment in this. Friend, let your weariness, your empty discouragement remind you that you are finite. Remind you that you don't have a an eternal charge to you on this planet. Let being drained remind you of how sufficient God is, of how beautiful God is, how faithful God is. And if we were to maybe take some of these concepts and drill them down into as hard of a tangible application as we can, which is a little difficult with this passage, let me just ask, who is your version of a Priscilla or an Aquila? Because God is obviously using deep community to be ministry. Who is someone in your life that doesn't really drain you further? Someone that you could be vulnerable in front of? Really vulnerable? Maybe uncomfortably vulnerable? Someone that you're pretty sure are not going to judge you? You need to let them minister to you. Because isolating yourself from man and God, that's not going to save you. It promises a paradise that simply cannot deliver. Some of you are thinking, I don't have a relationship like that. You'd be in the majority. But you know, you've got to build one. You've got to build one. I have a feeling, a feeling that when Timothy and Silas showed up, old friends, he was just so excited. He could probably, they could probably just pick up where they left off. Probably didn't have to guard himself with what he said. He probably didn't walk away from too many of those conversations thinking, gosh, I overshared. I shouldn't have said what I said. What do they think about me? That probably did not happen. I'm just, maybe, maybe that's the case. It takes time to build these relationships. I tell this to people all the time. Think of your bestest of best friends. You didn't build that very quickly, did you? Years. You know how you build relationships like that? It takes a fair amount of risk. It takes an amount of risk of saying something that you all, almost wish you could pull right back, right? To where the next morning you wake up and you're like, I did, I said that, I said that. 
And, and, and you wonder if, if they're ever going to look at you the same. You kind of hope that they will text you. So maybe you text them first just to let, you, let them know, hey, I'm, I'm not a weirdo, man. I know I said that, but I'm not really a weirdo. It takes those moments to build those types of relationships, vulnerable ones. And maybe you are one of those people to someone else. Maybe you're an Aquila. Maybe you're a Priscilla. Let me tell you, when people come and they dump their laundry all over the table for you, your goal is not to fix them. It's not why they're telling you that. The goal also isn't just to vent into the air for the sake of venting. Your goal is to help them behold Jesus. Let him do all the work. Let, let, let the Holy Spirit do what he was really good at. And that is ministering, encouraging, and reshaping the human heart over and over again as we are inwardly renewed day by day by day by day by day. Just help them see Jesus. Because I'm telling you, when I'm terrified and fearful and tired, I can't see him. I can't see him very clearly. I need somebody that knows me not to try to fix my problems. Well, here are the six steps I would do. I need someone to say, hey, who is Jesus to you right now? What do you hear him saying to you right now? I need that, and so do you. Who is Priscilla and Aquila to you, and who are you operating in the same way to somebody else? And maybe the second tangible is just hearing the voice of God encourage us, which he found in a dream. What do you, what, what do you hear, I guess? What do you hear God declare over you when you really need to hear it? Paul really needed to hear it here. What is your go-to passage that returns you to perspective? Right? We, we, we should all have one or two or 50, right, that you can memorize, that just kind of snap you right back to where you need to be. I've got a few. I've got a few. And, and sometimes I don't even have the wherewithal or the endurance or the competency even to recite it from memory. Sorry, wished I could. I just don't have it. So I'll pick up the Bible and I'll just read it to myself once, twice, 20 times. And then I can just feel it doing ministry. I end up in that place where I say, God is God or he's not. This is true or it's not. And I have to be ministered. It's, it's not just reading, you understand? It's metabolizing. It's meditating and eating and really letting it do its work inside of you. What is it that helps you not be afraid anymore? What passage helps you boast in the strength of God? What gives you rest? See, there's so much to repent from. When I read this, I'm full of this provocation to just repent. Because how we handle our weary fear, that's, that's a result of how we view God. Think about it. Think about it. If you escape into isolation and distraction, what that is is a declaration about how you see God. He's not good enough. So you have to find good elsewhere. Scrolling might get you there. Isolation might get you there, but he is not good enough. I've got to find good. That's a declaration on God. Listen, you're not a victim. You've got to repent from that. You have to turn. It's a sick way. It's a septic way of seeing God that we have to turn away from. Same thing if we just double down into harder work, just to make ourselves more impressive. What that is is that's a declaration. It says God is not graceful, so I have to be impressive. I have to earn it, right? That has to be repented of. And listen, if you are here or you're watching and you don't love Jesus... Maybe you're new to this whole thing. Maybe you're still kind of exploring, asking questions, kicking tires, however you want to say it. I don't have to convince you that you have limits. <laughs> I don't even have to convince you, I don't think, 
that you have an intrigue of what eternity is like. It's what we call being Christ-haunted. I, I, I'm pretty sure we agree on that, or else you wouldn't be listening this far into the sermon. You, you would have already clicked off by now. I don't have to convince you that feeling weary and fearful is a hellish place to be. What I hope you see in Jesus today is that not only did he leave a limitless place to enter our limitations, he did so to carry us to a family of limitless possibilities to enjoy for eternity. There's one requirement, one requirement, and that's to embrace his easy yoke. He says, come to me all who are weary. Come to me all who are weary. Come to me all who are weary. Come to me. Weariness of trying to be put together all the time. Weary of trying to be impressive. Weary of trying to follow your own rules. Forget anyone else's rules. Weary, just weary. He says, come to me. Come to me. And I will give you rest. Rest. 